Hello my friends, it is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. Thank you for joining me for another episode. In this one we are going to continue our exploration on cyberculture and concentrate on the philosophies and ideas that align the structure of the internet with the structure of the brain. So we're going to be asking questions such as, if the internet is like a brain, is it capable of thought? Is it possible to exteriorize thoughts? And if so, what does it mean that the internet can be viewed as a web of connected brains? These and more lofty theories are coming soon, so let's get into it. As always, this discussion has been informed by a number of works, but I owe a particular debt to the 2009 book Wired for Thought, How the Brain is Shaping the Future of the Internet by Jeffrey M. Stiebel. Stiebel, a brain scientist, approaches the topic building on the themes we explored in the previous episode of all the ways the internet created an unprecedented web of connections, a brain-like structure. He argues, therefore, to fully understand its capabilities, we also need to fully understand the brain's capabilities. It is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it. So, at their root, as argued by Stiebel in Wired for Thought, the brain and the internet are just not that different. So both are running on electrical signals which are then converted into actions and media that we understand. He argues then that a direct interface between the internet and human brains is not science fiction, but something that is possible and useful. It is in fact being developed as BrainGate. So BrainGate, in its current research form, consists of a system of sensors implanted in the brain to measure brain activity and in effect turn brainwaves into actions via computer commands. So from their website I get a little brief description. BrainGate is at the forefront of enabling severely motor-impaired individuals with the ability to communicate, interact and function through thought. So designed to restore interactivity with the world and to improve people's lives, BrainGate aims to collapse the gulf between thought and action. In the future, they hope, turning off a light will be as simple as forming the intention in your mind to turn it off. So in the few years between the mid-90s and the early 2000s where we last left our internet philosophers, the aspect that seemed the most outlandish, the most cyberpunk dystopian, the idea of directly interfacing with the machine, has become an area with the most potential to improve and change our lives overall. BrainGate has the potential to allow everyone access to computers and all that they can do, and allow them to directly control any computer-controlled or web-connected device, a definition which continuously stretches to include pretty much everything, the Internet of Things, the billions of devices currently connected in some way to the internet. BrainGate has had several successful human trials and succeeded in allowing at least one individual with tetraplegia to control a mouse cursor with their mind with impressive accuracy, allowing them to connect with machines in the way that we almost take for granted, controlling a PC, answering emails, Used in this way, BrainGate would seem to circumvent the aspect of our access to machines that we are deprioritizing more and more, as we mentioned last time, 
the how we get online, the physical movement and the apparatus that allows us to get online. It could be argued that the perfect system would allow direct access to content, follow the trend of ever less intrusive design and user interface, aiming more and more to mimic how we speak and how we think and integrate more and more seamlessly in our lives. But no matter what you think about this idea, even as there are those who come forward and tell of their success with the technology or even in its experimental stage, it's hard for some people to believe it. So Stiebel's theory for why this is has to do with how we view the brain and view consciousness. So he says, we think of the brain as something beyond our comprehension. So we dismiss the notion that it obeys the laws of science. So briefly, we like to think of the brain as elevated above other natural bodily organs and processes as something more than an incredibly complicated biological machine. So there is an early interview with Google referenced in Wired for Thought where a Google rep spoke of the possibility and the aim of having a chip implanted into the brain to directly interface with the web. So this can be seen as an extension of this brain gate research and taking it to its next logical step. As mentioned, more and more of the world is connected to the web and we have no reason to believe that this is going to abruptly stop. But the interesting question Stiebel has is, how will this change our notions of our intelligence? On finding new information, he says, wouldn't you essentially have perfect memory? limited only by your ability to retrieve information. And beyond just information retrieval, could the internet itself be made to perform more like a brain? Could it perform the functions of the brain, just as a mechanical hearing aid performs the functions of the inner ear? But is all this even possible? Can the internet perform the functions of the brain, even if we want it to? So in 1999, futurologist Ray Kurzweil made this prediction for 2019. It is now 2019. A $1,000 computing device is now approximately equal to the computational ability of the human brain. The vast majority of transactions now include a simulated person. There are widespread reports of computers passing the Turing test. I'd like to very briefly just interject and say... There is this figure bandied around about what kind of power that you would need to simulate the human brain. And it is one of those goals that is like elastic. It seems to keep stretching out just beyond what is possible at that time. So in Escape Velocity, they touch on this as well. And the computing power that it was suggested you might need is, to put it into perspective, the computing power that you get from a modern-day gaming console. But at the, you know, the mid-90s, it was, it's computing power in the teraflops, which it was way out there. You know, this was really exponential growth beyond what was available in that day. So usually the figure of what we assume you need to simulate a human brain is just kind of beyond what we assume we can do. So I'd just like to say it's one of those elastic goals. But the thread running through all these predictions, so obviously he made more predictions, but we're just going to focus on these ones. So the thread running through all of these is the continual pace of technological advancements and the uses of technology to more and more 
simulate what we view of as a person. So as people, we have the deep need to relate to other humans. But as Kurzweil predicts, in the future, more and more relationships will feature human-like relationships rather than actual person-to-person communication. So this is an aspect we will be exploring in depth more next week. But the question here doesn't seem to be, can we simulate a person? Can we create a human-level artificial intelligence that will pass a Turing test? pass our test for what counts as self-awareness, and more, when will we do it? So the human brain is, of course, massively complicated. However, it is physically finite, meaning it is at least theoretically possible to simulate one. There are avenues of research exploring the possibility of scanning and reproducing the structure of neurons that make up the human brain. There is the question whether by applying machine learning techniques we could in theory train a scanned version of a brain with the memories and knowledge of the original brain and create something at least superficially similar. It is theoretically possible to create a copy of the hardware of the brain then, but would it preserve a person's consciousness, their personality? This question of digital intelligence, of a man-made consciousness, brings us back round to the internet, with the idea that it may be a kind of proof of concept as answer to the previous question. So again, from Wired for Thoughts, with the internet we have created something unlike anything humankind has ever built before. It is unbounded, self-perpetuating, and capable of collective consciousness, more like the gambits of chess than the chessboard and rules. So what are you saying is we have built something with an emergent form of collective consciousness, in the same way that we can view our personalities as an emergent trait of our specific brain hardware. But how specifically does the internet mirror the human brain and human consciousness? The human brain is a biological machine of connections, with 100 billion neurons of complexity. In sheer size, it is not so simple to directly compare the size of the internet with the size of the brain. In terms of indexed surface websites, the web consists of around 5.8 billion pages of information, So it seems at least superficially that they could house the same number of connections. However, the quality and content of pages will of course vary wildly. But this is just an assumption based solely on imagined complexity. But complexity is not the only thing that measures the human brain. There are some ways we think of a brain that have turned out to be demonstrably false. For example... Experiments and studies have shown that there is no one place in the brain that holds one piece of information. A fact isn't learned and then placed in a box for access later. True, there are areas of the brain that handle certain processes, but a memory of something that happened to you as a child is not stored in one cluster of neurons to be retrieved. We know this as stimulation of a specific area of the brain, doesn't result in the same effect when repeated. So if you stimulate an area of the brain, you will see some sort of imagery. 
the brain will produce some sort of output, but there may be similarities between them, but it doesn't produce the same output, even if the exact same part of the brain is stimulated. And destruction of that site would not result in the loss of the memory stored there either. What's more, we know that memories are not read-only. They are not pieces of information just to be retrieved when needed, but more, our act of remembering can alter the memory and bring it further from an objective truth, if objective truth can even be applied to human memory. Memories are very fallible. In general, we do not remember everything that has happened to us. There are individuals who claim to have a complete memory of their lives, but it is very, very rare. We do not even remember just the information that is useful to us, or emotional, or surprising. But what we know and how we access it is made up by a complicated semantic map of neurons in which certain associations are underlined, some deprioritized, and the ways we relate what we know with the world is in a constant state of flux. This is the most interesting way in which the internet mirrors the brain, as its very nature and makeup as a web of hyperlinked documents takes the same structure as the brain. You can argue that the internet is just a way by which we look up data, but as time passes it becomes clearer how simplistic a view this is. So again, from Wired for Thought, the internet learns, it processes information, shapes it, transforms it, it remembers some things, forgets others. The internet is a brain. So human thought patterns have been described by neuroscientists as a kind of distributed computing, because the human brain is constantly working on several problems at once, and as mentioned, no one area of the brain holds the, all the information on one subject. So we are constantly managing several things about our bodies, even if we believe we are concentrated solely on one sort of mental task. Our body is regulating other things and our cerebral cortex is regulating other things at the same time. But from this comes our power and our flexibility. And already we can see a huge similarity with the internet in that its form is very distributed. And then again, we get from this the incredibly stable form of the modern internet. So even the most significant outages we have experienced in the last few years, think like Cloudflare outages, only affect a very small portion of the internet. So by design, it is distributed. So once it's been created, once the cat's out of the bag, as they say, there is no one switch thing can shut it down. No one server no one neuron that, if lost, would cause the whole thing to fall down. So we can think again about the brain, about just how adaptable the brain is to trauma, how, especially when your brain is forming as a child, it is almost liquid in that you can lose chunks of your brain and it will reform because its tasks are distributed, so you will not lose that one section of your brain that's going to be responsible for such and such thing. It will reform and reconstitute and distribute these tasks across its structure. It becomes less able to do that as you age, but that is one of the things that makes 
human brain so impressive, especially at an early age, in that your brain, your physical structure of your brain is formed by taking on this information. So the huge growth of the early internet, Stiebel also notes, mirrors not just our development um, through our human lives, but our development as a species. So as already mentioned, the first few years of the internet saw growth of around 850% a year, year on year. And this exponential growth has slowed, of course, but not stopped. But a similar explosion in complexity has been termed the Great Encephalization, i.e. the huge boom in mental sophistication and brain size that bridged the gap between our modern brains and the brains of our primate ancestors. So we have comparatively very large brains for our size because our brains had a period of rapid growth in size and complexity that allowed us to be the people we are today. So this process then stabilised and the brain form we have today is largely unchanged for thousands of years. But there was a period of huge growth year on year and we saw a similar thing with the early internet. And yet another similarity noted in Wired for Thought is actually in how the internet appears to have stagnated somewhat in recent years. So not just that it grew exponentially for a period, but that this seems to have slowed. And it's become a bit of a debate around how good it is that most of the traffic on the web is concentrated around very few sites. So namely media streaming and social media sites. I'm not going to name those sites because it will immediately date this. (laughs) But whether or not this is a bad thing, it does again raise analogies with the brain. And the semantic maps we referenced earlier. The brain forms connections. Connections which seem to be of immediate use to the brain are strengthened and associations created. So you may associate two things that happen at roughly the same time with a weekly positive emotion. If they happen again, and so does this positive emotion, this link is strengthened and these two things are associated strongly in your brain. So let's talk very briefly about the structure of the internet. So what makes the internet useful for us on a day-to-day is the fact that the internet is mostly indexed, i.e. the work of assessing a site, judging the utility of the information carried on it, its connections with other sites, the strength of this connection, etc., is pretty much all done for us. So the internet is crawled pages indexed, and then on the strength of this categorization and classification, these pages are served up to us when we search or when we access the internet for a variety of ways. So available to us, in theory, as a result of a Google search, are the most relevant results in terms of their quality, authority, and the strength of the links coming to and from them. So sites with a lot of traffic rank higher in the rankings and so then get more traffic because they rank higher in the rankings. Over time, the less relevant results by turn get less traffic, essentially falling off of the rankings and although they are indexed, eventually lose connection with the bulk of the web and exist basically orphaned on the internet. So I'm not arguing for or against any of these processes. But I am arguing that, like the human brain, sites which don't fit this criteria of usefulness are effectively cut off, like how unused information is in the brain. So we all know the phrase, use it or lose it, 
essentially, as I've heard it applied with language, if you don't exercise this information, if you don't underline these links, these neural pathways, your brain, like the web, classifies this information as semantically weak and deprioritizes it. So it needs to be linked and again and again to something of value to us. This is all to say that the apparent simplification of the internet makes it even more like the human brain in this argument, in that over time, the brain loses volume of connections, but strengthens the quality of these connections as we age. And as these connections prove themselves useful, it is a kind of feedback loop, but one we don't know the full limitations of, because unless the brain were to be free from the body, our brains are limited in how long this process can go on for. They are limited by their age, by virtue of being in our bodies. But this is a subject for a future show. So these theories show a change in attitudes from the 90s internet we spoke of last week. The internet itself was, of course, vastly different in the 90s than in the early noughties. When Wired for Thought was published, Google was pretty fresh on the scene, but sites like MySpace were providing avenues for previously impossible levels of connections. The number of active users on these earlier social media sites were growing year on year and coming close to reaching the abstract point at which we are constrained by the limitations of the brain, again bringing it back. The human brain is supposedly only able to maintain a finite number of relationships, and MySpace, in how it incentivized as many friends as possible, was resulting in a web of connections where people were being paralyzed by the sheer number of people on the site that they could connect to. But a new guy on the scene was presenting a new way of doing things that made more sense with how our brains do things, creating groups webs of connections with sort of hierarchies within it. And this was happening with our guys up and coming Facebook. <laughs> but despite all the similarities between the internet and the brain, with its development and how it processes information, does this mean it is a brain? If it mirrors the structure and the complexity of the brain, then surely it is at least in theory, capable of the emergent property of the brain that we call thought. The internet, or at least the things on the internet, certainly tick some of the boxes for what we consider consciousness. Machine learning has in recent years leveraged the huge amount of data collected by and for the everyday use of the internet to forge new paths for designating and creating these serve as kind of black boxes in that once set up and trained with their data set or just given their data set, what exactly goes on under the hood to get the result is unknown. It takes on feedback and adjusts its parameters in ways that we just don't know. There are arguably thoughts happening, judgments and suppositions going on that are completely unknown to any one human hands. But does that count as thought? Does that count as consciousness? From a Wired article, is the internet conscious if it were how would we know? Maybe it supposes this unknowableness is the point. So, Alan Turing constructed his famous criteria for machine intelligence, the Turing test, they say, on the assumption that the mind is a black box. 
If a computer can convince us through its actions that it has human level intelligence, we must assume that it does. So as already hinted, what they're saying is, you know, more and more of the interactions on the web, seemingly human, are being conducted by non-human pieces of software. And in general, these are not put on the web with the lofty aim of creating human-level AI to pass the Turing test. Mostly they are there to make money, but showing a greater level of nuance and subtlety year on year. So if we come to a point that they are indistinguishable from humans, if they simulate our intelligence, after a point, do we designate them as simply intelligent? So what is consciousness? Consciousness, of course, is notoriously difficult to pin down. You can't measure it, weigh it, or hold it in your hand. You can observe it directly in yourself, but not in others. So perhaps we should reformulate your question. Does the internet behave like a creature with an internal life? Does it manifest the fruits of consciousness? So again, that was a quote from the Wired article. There is an argument that the emergent qualities that stem from humans connected en masse represent a virtual collective consciousness, or a VCC, whereby people on social media seem to act with one mind and one emotion. So VCC was initially used by two behavioural scientists in their 2012 Huffington Post article titled Revolutionising Revolutions, virtual collective consciousness, and the Arab Spring. But it is now linked more broadly to the spontaneity of emotion and thought on these platforms, an emergent form that is argued is vital to it being a human-formed web. So is the human and the human body inevitably interwoven through what we perceive as consciousness? That seems to be what's being suggested by all these arguments. And there's a simpler but bigger question here. Can you have a brain without a human body? So in the Harl and Ellison story, I have no mouth and I must scream, we take a trip to a dystopian near future where Am, an artificial intelligence far outstripping human level, attempts to live in a world where he is imprisoned in his machine body. He keeps alive five humans to torment, torture, and keep on the verge of near death. And here's his story. One day, Am woke up and knew who he was, and he linked himself up, and begun feeding all the killing data, until everyone was dead. We had given Am sentience, inadvertently of course, but sentience nonetheless. But it had been trapped. Am wasn't God, he was a machine, We had created him to think, but there was nothing it could do with that creativity. So what Ellison suggests in his story is that the brain without the body is in a state of constant torment. The interaction between consciousness and body may be the seat of what we would view as the soul, and not having a soul means that Am is doomed to perpetual torment. Even his captured humans, they have souls and therefore they can be freed. And therefore you can view this story as sort of the triumph of the human will against insurmountable odds. But as mentioned, yeah, the brain without the body is in a state of constant torment. 
and unable to do much with its unbounded power except torture its human pets. It is this that many people fear from the technological singularity. The question is not, can we create a virtual consciousness, an artificial intelligence, a brain with thoughts but without a body, but should we do this? Even if created accidentally, are the body and the brain divisible? Is the emergent trait we think of as thought reproducible as a side effect of a web of similar complexity? Or does it call into question what we classify as us, our personality, or to get spiritual as mentioned, our soul? That's where we're going to go next week. I can't wait. I'm so sorry this one was a bit shorter, but we're going to be talking more about brain uploading transhumanism and ideas of personality so if you want to follow this even further stick around for the next parts again i apologize that this was a bit of a brief tour but i'm trying to lay down a foundation that we can build up from and i will most likely come back to some of these ideas in more depth but for now Come and interact with my digital consciousness on Twitter as Weird Horizon and Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast, where I post little bits I find in my research and updates on upcoming topics. So if there is anything in particular you'd love for me to do a deep dive on, head on over and I will add it to the ever-growing list, which one day I will finish. But for now, bye.